Thank you, everyone. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. Uh, it's a little strange for me. Uh, the last time I gathered with all of you was down at the beach uh, three weeks ago, the last time the sun was out uh, three weeks ago. I'm telling you, always great weather down at the beach. And besides that, what's going on this year? I don't know. But, uh, you know, we had a number of baptisms. I don't know if we had a chance to celebrate that. But I mean, I think that was the most baptisms we've had at one of our gatherings in years. So I just want to praise God for that. That's the last experience I had with you. And, uh, and then I think uh, my wife and I were almost late on an international flight to Italy. Like literally after the bath, I didn't even get a piece of chicken on the way out. I just went straight into the car. We went straight to the airport. I accompanied my wife on a work trip to Italy. It was unbelievable. It was like a second honeymoon for us, essentially, being gone that many days out of this context. I'll tell you, it was gray. So any of you that are feeling jealous, same weather is here. Was in Italy. I don't know what's going on. Two most beautiful places in the world, same weather. I think creation is groaning, waiting its redemption. You know, that's in the Bible. It's been a tough couple of years. I mean, the rain, the tears. I'm just connecting it, you know, that way. Maybe I'm just talking about my own emotions here. I will say I ate a lot of great pizza, lots of pizza, which prepared me for my next big life milestone. I turned 36 on Monday, had my birthday, that's right. I feel 36 after all that pizza. So uh, anyway, I, I, I am adjusting. Uh, I, I preached for like five months straight through the holidays, through the book of Revelation, through the series New Creations. To be gone for two weeks, it just feels like I've lived a lifetime in those last two weeks. So this is, this is new for me. Uh, stepping into this, this is my first week in the Hebrews series. We had Austin the first week, Brian the second week, and now I'm finally joining in. So bear with me as I get the engine going again, as I readapt to this setting of preaching. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 3. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. We're in Hebrews chapter 3, this series, Standing Firm. Uh, Brian did a great job last week looking at the entirety of chapter 2, speaking about the supremacy of Christ over all other heavenly beings. He spoke furthermore about the role of Jesus as this advocate, this this high priest who has joined us to the family of God, who has made us through the sacrifice of himself, his brothers and sisters. He is now our high priest, our mediator before God. These are supreme descriptions that are going to be followed up on as we move through this book of Hebrews. But as we turn to chapter 3, it's, it's like this change of tone as we reflect back on the grandness of the supremacy of Christ depicted in chapter 2, as we think about the power of his word and work, today the author is going to commend us to stand firm and in faith, just like the name of this series. That's a message that obviously is going to be coming through again and again in our readings. That's why we name the series Standing Firm. We've got to stand in the confidence we have in God. We've got to cling to the hope that we have stored up for us in heaven. Now, as we shall see in our study, not all in Israel's past, in the, in the people of God's history, clung to that hope, remained in their confidence. There were those in the history of God's people that though they had seen the works of God, though they had been given promises by God himself, they allowed their hearts to be hardened in unbelief and so fell away and faced judgment in their sin. Let's read here. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. 
Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, again, connected to chapter 2, in light of the supremacy of Christ, in light of what he has accomplished for us, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence, and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So concludes Hebrews chapter 3. The author begins in verse 1, having built up the understanding of the supremacy of Jesus in chapter 2 by calling us those who are holy brothers and sisters through Jesus. He calls us to fix our thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest for us, this messenger of God, this advocate for us on our behalf before God. And this is really the message of the whole letter. I mean, you're going to hear this again and again and again. Fix your thoughts. Fix your attention on Jesus. Derive your confidence. Derive your faith, your hope from him. Stand firm in it. All of that. When we, when we place our thoughts on Jesus, everything is going to follow after that. Our life is going to follow the direction of our thoughts, the direction of our attention if it's placed on him. It's similar to how I coach my son in, in baseball. I have this phrase that I'll share with him. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this phrase before. I think maybe I invented it. Keep your eye on the ball. Yes, I'm an amazing coach. If you guys want to use that when you're coaching anyone in baseball, I've never heard it shared elsewhere. One day I'm going to be teaching a pre-parental class in this, uh, in this church community. It's going to be all just adages like that, wisdom like that. I have so much wisdom to share, but... Enough about me. I mean, I'm not a great baseball player. I played till I was like age 10. But, but when I share that piece of advice, inevitably, 
there's a 90% chance my son makes contact with the ball. On the other side of just that statement, keep your eye on the ball. It's because there's this dynamic called hand-eye coordination. If you're looking at something, your body follows, right? Hand-eye coordination. There's another dynamic that I believe exists. It's mind-life coordination. Wherever your mind is focused, your life is going to follow. If your attention wanders, so will your intentions, right? I mean, if your thoughts are confused, don't you often find that your life is also confused as a result? So we're called to fix our thoughts on Jesus. The word in the Greek that's translated in our Bibles as fix your thoughts, it's a compound word that means to think down, to think down. And it implies this process of like thinking from the top down, working it through all the way before you form your conclusion. And the author's been taking us through that with Jesus and will continue to do so, meditating on him and drawing conclusions about him. In this chapter, comparing him to Moses, starting in verse 2. He's thinking from the top down. Let's think about Jesus and the heavenly beings in chapter. Let's think about Jesus and Moses. And when the Jews would think about Moses, like the original audience receiving this letter, I, I just can't put into words how monumental was Moses' influence among that original audience. Uh, I, I can't put it into words, but it's my job to put it into words, so I'm going to try to put it into words right now. How monumental Moses was in the minds of those who had first received this letter. He was like, uh, you know, George Washington for us in America. You know, he, he founded, he was one of the founders of their nation. He received the law, right? He helped establish the sacrificial system in the tabernacle. He was like Abraham Lincoln, you know, who, who helped lead the nation through this emancipation out of Egypt and slavery and oppression. He led God's people into freedom. He's like this Billy Graham type figure, you know, who was sort of the symbolic moral and spiritual authority of the nation. He's all these important people from our history rolled into one epic legendary hero. He was considered the greatest prophet and leader of the Old Testament. But Jesus, who we follow and have given our lives to, is worthy of greater honor, so says verse 3. The same way the builder of a house is worthy of greater glory than the house that gets built. Essentially, there's the things that Moses did in service to God, but all those things that Moses did were just there to point to the reality of Jesus. Like if you go into the Old Testament, the way that Moses behaved before the people... The sacrificial system, the law, every single aspect of Moses' life and ministry just tees up a greater theme that's going to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. It's like he, you know, lived into the shadow of the things that were to come. You see the shadow, but you turn your attention to see the reality, the real thing. And God is the real thing, it says in verse 4, as the builder of everything. I just want you to think about that for a second. A lot of times we read the Bible and we're just trying to get the main point. It's kind of cursory. We don't let it sink into our heart. But do you hear that statement in verse four? Do you think about that and its impact upon you? Like here's Moses. He's this great hero from Jewish history. He's a servant in God's house. But God built the house. God builds everything. God built your life. God built the breath that you have. God 
gave you the possessions that you have. God gave you your heart and your mind. God gave you your past and your future. You know, even the most devout atheist, if you can be a devout atheist, knows that they did not make themselves. They are not the origin of themselves, right? And we, in faith, acknowledge that God is the builder of our very lives. I mean, take that in for yourself. Everything that you are, you're here on a Sunday morning. You're offering this time back to God. But do you understand? That's the right thing to do. To honor Him with your time. To honor Him in your mind and your heart in this space to worship Him. Because everything that you have finds its origin in Him. I can take you in my backyard and I can walk you through and I can show you the things that I built. Eh, I built that. Eh, I've remodeled this and that. Everywhere you walk, everything that you experience... You're walking through the showcase of what God has done. So verses 5 and 6 tell us, Moses, yeah, he's his faithful servant in this house that God built. But Jesus is a son over that house. Jesus is over everything that exists, including our very lives. In comparison, Moses, you know, idolize. The biggest idol of the Jewish culture. You know, idolize anyone you want from this day. Moses, the greatest person who lived up to that point in a lot of their minds, was but a butler in the house that Jesus was over. And now we constitute together that house as those made Jesus' brothers and sisters through his sacrifice. We've been joined to it, taken from unholy in sin to holy through God's grace. We're a part of the main thing that God has been doing since the beginning of human history. The things that Moses was working toward we are partakers in those things and inheritors of this promised land in heaven. If, and this is the message of the book of Hebrews, if in verse 6, and only if, we continue to hold firmly to our confidence and hope in Jesus. It's like you and I are in the will. And the estate is going to be bequeathed to us. And we're going to get to share in all that is God's together. If, and this is the only condition, if we remain in the unconditional love of God. And the warning of today in Hebrews 3 is that not all have. Some have gone the distance with God and then fallen short, just short of the finish line. Imagine running a marathon, 26.2 miles, and then stopping and falling short at 26.1 miles. Just not finishing it out. Just saying, eh, I'm going to turn back. I'm done. It's over for me. Guys, I think the longest I've run continuously at one time is a 5K. And it hurt. <laughs> and I was exhausted. So I know that doesn't make me look great in your eyes. That's not my job to make myself look great in your eyes. But I can tell you, like, after three plus miles, I'm exhausted. I can't imagine the cost, the sacrifice, the effort that would go into this whole journey of expending all that 26.1 miles and falling short and not finishing out the marathon. But that's exactly what God's people have done in their history. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us in verse 7. And we covered already that Moses was the positive example of his generation. And yet this quotation of Psalm 95 that starts in verse 7, it's a song that reflects on the events of Numbers chapter 14. When Moses' generation neglected to enter into the promised land that God had given his people as their inheritance. 
For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, the Israelites, after having been freed from slavery in Egypt, they're led through the wilderness by Moses. They're not led by 40, for, through the wilderness for 40 years at that point. It was kind of a quick journey. They moved straight to the borders of the promised land, the place that God had said, I'm going to give this land to you. And when they're on the border, Moses sends 12 Israelite spies into the land to go check it out, scope it out. And they come back with a report. They say, oh man, this is an abundant land. It's flowing with milk and honey. I know that doesn't sound great to a lot of ears in Orange County because all you guys are lactose intolerant, but in the ancient world, this just meant that there was so much abundance. There's so many resources. It's an incredible land. But there were only two of those 12 spies, Caleb and Joshua, that came back and said, hey guys, let's go take the land. God is with us. The majority of the spies said, look, if we try to take that land, though, given the people that are in that land, the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, all the ites that are in that land, that is going to be certain death for all of us. So now I want to read the account of Numbers chapter 14, because this is where you see the reaction. The spies have gone in. The two have come back with the report. It's an amazing land. Let's go take it. God is with us. And the 10 come back, too, and they say, look, it's certain death for us. How did the community respond? That's that song, Psalm 95, that's cited in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. What's going on in this story that the original audience would know, but maybe we're not familiar with? Chapter 14 of Numbers, verse 1. And I'm going to read a little bit into chapter 14 here. I hope you're okay you're at church with reading the Bible. But let me tell you, like this, it said in Hebrews 3, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart today. The word of God is God's voice to us. So let's listen to God's voice. Verse one. That night, upon hearing the news, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. So these are the men speaking. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Don't you love the reaction of God's people? You got two guys who actually have the faith and the courage who believe in the promises of God and are telling everyone, don't be afraid of these practical problems that we got facing us because God is our protection. And the whole community says, I know how we can handle this. Let's kill these guys. Let's stone them to death. <laughs> the only thing that saves them is the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses, just like Jesus, everything that Moses did is just a shadow of who Jesus would be for us. Moses contends for them. He says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. 
By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, like he's the builder of everything, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb had a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valley, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The psalm quoted here in Hebrews chapter 3 makes sense considering Numbers 14. Today, if you hear God's voice, just like they heard God's voice, and just like they saw the signs of God, just like they received the promises of God, if you have given your life to Christ, if you had committed yourself to the message of the gospel, if you have heard his voice, do not let your heart become hardened. The word picture for that word, to let your heart become hardened, it's a picture of something that gets dried out. You know, it's sort of like the burrito my kids dropped into a pocket in the backseat of my car an undisclosed number of weeks ago that I discovered a couple days ago. When food dries out like that, right? Like everything you see in the Starbucks like window there. It's dried out. It becomes stubborn, right? It becomes inflexible. The Israelites had become inflexible, stuck, stubborn, opposed to the leading of God, though they saw his works, though they'd received his grace, though they were being given the blessing of rest, abundance, a land, a future. And God had delivered at every stage of the journey, every promise he made, he fulfilled. And here was one more promise. But when they got to the land, they didn't think it through from top to bottom. They didn't start with God and work their way into their circumstances. They thought it through from the bottom up. And their problems and the obstacles became bigger than their vision for God. And they let the testimony of a handful spread through the camp until... The doubts led to a tipping point and they lost the will to act and obey in alignment with God's leading. The fear and influence of the faithless dried out the hearts of the people. It's like an image from our namesake passage. Like a branch when it's connected to the vine, like we're supposed to remain spiritually connected to Jesus. When it's connected to the vine and you look at a leaf on a branch, right? It's soft. It's supple. It's flexible, right? It's filled with life. 
But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not grounded in me spiritually, you're like a branch that's removed from the vine. And what happens to a branch removed from the vine? It dries out like a callous, hardened heart. It becomes brittle and eventually it breaks. That is the outcome of a hardened heart. It will be broken. In Numbers chapter 14, following the hardening of their hearts, God flipped his promise. He made a new promise. He said, I promised on oath to give you this land as your inheritance. Just go take it. But because their hearts went astray, he promised the opposite. He said, I promise you, you will never get this land. I promise you, you will die in the wilderness. And that's why they had to wander for 40 years. It was until the last of that generation had passed away. Verse 12 warns us not to suffer the same fate, to not have this sinful, unbelieving, dried out, inflexible, brittle heart that turns away from the living God, that turns away from the word and the way of Jesus. How did they end up there? Verse 13 says the Israelites got to this place of unbelief and hardness of heart because of the deceptiveness of sin. And that is the nature of our sin and rebellion. It is by nature deceptive and deceiving. It will speak lies to us. Right, They were in this place on the edge of the promised land. And in their rebellion, in their sin, that rebellion began to lie to them, to deceive them into forgetting all that God had done in the past. That's what sin does. Sin will make you have amnesia about all that God has done in your past, all that he's accomplished, all the promises that he's fulfilled. It'll be gone in an instant because you're justifying your rebellion. You're justifying your sin. It's deceptive. It'll lie to you. It'll make you forget. Just as they forgot. They'd moved through the wilderness. They'd seen all the plagues. They'd been released from slavery. They walked through the Red Sea. But then they get to the land and say, wow, there's some really tall people in the land. I guess we can't take it. They had forgotten everything that had happened before. That rebellion, that nature in ourselves, the sin will lie to us. It'll make our problems appear bigger in our perspective than God's power to save. How many times did sin deceive the Israelites where they come to a problem and instead of like going to God and saying, God, how are you going to handle this? You're the one powerful to deal with this. They said, wow, these problems are so big. Let's take it upon ourselves to find the solutions. And that's what sin will do in our own lives. It'll deceive us into thinking, oh man, you're facing this, you're going through this. Well, you take your coping strategies into your own hands. You figure out a way to deal with these problems instead of relying on the saving power of God. That's the deceptiveness of sin. You know, the deceptiveness of sin told the Israelites, we should value our own preservation more than our expansion. That's what sin will do to you. Sin will say, hey, you just keep the status quo going in your life. You remain comfortable right where you are. Don't grow. Don't move and don't change and don't go in the direction that God has for you, which is a life of expansion. Right? Jesus taught us. He said, if you love your life, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you want to preserve what you've got, if you just want the status quo and keep it, you can't keep it. There is no preservation apart from God. You try to hold on to this life, it's going to decay in your hands. But whoever loses their life for me is going to find it. It's that expansion. But the Israelites couldn't see that because of the deceptiveness of sin. The deceptiveness of sin made slavery more appealing than abundance. 
I mean, that's one of the core deceptions of sin and rebellion in our own lives. When we're trapped in a place of rebellion, when we're trapped in a place of sin, that life of slavery to that sin seems more appealing than the life of abundance that Jesus offers to us. That is what sin is. It is a form of slavery, whether it's in your pride and ego, whether it's in you know, your sexual immorality, whether it's in your greed, whether it's in your malice and your unforgiveness with someone else. So sin will constantly be that deceptive force in us. Considering the very real threat of the deceptiveness of our sin, considering the voices of faithlessness that exists in our culture and sometimes among God's people, the writer of Hebrews wants to prompt and coax us to prompt and coax each other into another direction. In verse 13, he says, we need to be a voice for each other, a voice of encouragement today as long as it's called today, meaning every single day we need to be speaking faith. We need to be encouraging each other. The Israelites were turned by the voices of some of their peers, but they should have listened to the voices of Caleb and Joshua, the very voices we're called to represent with one another. I mean, if you look at the account of Numbers chapter 14, Caleb and Joshua can't be more emotional about the message that they're giving to their fellow Israelites. It says they tore their clothes. Like, they're on the edge of the promised land. They've gone through this whole journey they want the land. They want to inherit the promise. They believe in what God can do, but they can't do it, just the two of them. They need the rest of God's people to get the same courage and believe in God the same way if they're going to enter into it. So they can see the way the emotions and the attitudes are turning in the group think that's going on. And they're tearing their clothes. And they're saying, do not rebel. Please. Don't you remember what God has done? Haven't you seen him be faithful? Haven't you seen him fulfill the promises? Don't be afraid of the obstacle. What does it matter if they're tall? You know, the, uh, they have no protection, they say. Isn't that amazing? I love that phrase. That's their vision as they're looking in there. It, God is the only protection there is. So if they don't have God on their side, and we do, they have no protection. We're going to devour them if we go in there. And that was just a passion, like the tears. Moses and Aaron are falling face down. That's the voice that we need with one another. You know, I told you this in our series in Revelation. Let us make up our mind today before the next national crisis or before the next personal crisis comes up that we're going to be that voice and we're going to stand firm in our trusting God. Before the election of 2024, make up your mind. Before the next global health crisis slash controversy, make up your mind about where you're going to go in your emotional state, where you're going to go in terms of your messaging. Make up your mind before the advent of AI and this becomes a Terminator movie <laughs> or whatever else is going to happen. We all lose our jobs. Make up your mind before we go into the next recession or depression. Make up your mind before you get that next illness, before you face your next life disappointment before there's another relational breakdown that you're going to stand firm in faith and you're going to be that voice. In Numbers 13, the fearful spies said they felt like grasshoppers in the face of their opposition in the promised land and they acted like it. They scattered. We have the Lord with us. We have our protection 
with us. We have a promised land of rest in heaven laid up for us. We have a house that God is building that we are and that the Son of God, our advocate and counselor, is over. We must every day live and be that voice of encouragement to one another. Remember what God said of Caleb in Numbers chapter 14, verse 24. He's saying, not one of those other folks that let their heart go astray and didn't believe in me and showed contempt for me is going to see this land. But Caleb, but Caleb has a different spirit. He serves me wholeheartedly. He remained courageous, trusting, and flexible in the hands of God. I want that different spirit. And the Bible says we are those who have received the very spirit of God. So in light of Hebrews chapter 3, I want to ask some questions for your own reflection as we conclude this time. Number one, to whom is your heart and mind attuned to today? To whom is your heart and mind attuned to today? When you want to tune a guitar, you break out the tuner. It, it sounds, you know, the note that you need to adjust the strings to, and you adjust the tension on the strings until they come into alignment with what is the actual notes, right? And, and I don't know how to play guitar, and I've never even used a tuner, but I'm talking about those who tune guitars. This is what you do. And when you come into alignment, when you, when you put that guitar in tune, it actually makes melody. It actually has harmony. It actually is able to produce chords that sound nice, right? When we attune our minds, when we fix our thoughts on the news, when we fix our thoughts on TikTok and the endless stream, when we fix our thoughts on the lives and the example of other people, our life ends up in discord. If our thoughts are confused, our life will be confused. If our attention wanders, so do our intentions. But the goal is to fix our thoughts on Christ. When we align, if you consider the strings on a guitar, like our mind, our heart, our actions. When we adjust fixing our thoughts on Jesus into alignment with him, suddenly we make music. Suddenly there's beauty. Suddenly it flows. Suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly there's life. And the goal is, as we mature and as we follow Christ throughout our lives, we won't need to break out the tuner as much anymore. We'll be able to tune by heart, by ear. We can go along like, I can't do this again. I have no skill whatsoever. I'm speaking third person. I, I think I'm the only human being that can sing both sharp and flat on the same note at the same time. I've been studied by science. I'm the only human that can do that. But I'm telling you, like when you watch the band... When something is off, they can tell in real time and they adjust on the fly. So we want to be those who can adjust on the fly to keep into alignment with Jesus. So my question for you today is, who are you attuned to in your heart and mind? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Along with that, are you reacting to your circumstances in life or are you responding to God? In your life. That's two different ways to live. Because the Israelites were reacting constantly to their circumstances, they were constantly motivated by their fears. And is that where your attention is given? The obstacles, the challenges, the concerns, the potential negative outcomes of this next phase of your life that you find yourself in? Or do you live attuned, fixing your thoughts on Jesus, 
responding to God, challenge to challenge, question to question, moment to moment. Which direction are you working from? Because God has a wisdom for you. Whatever you're facing, we're all facing issues, problems. You know, the original audience here was not on the edge of receiving a promised land. And that was not what the illustration was about. No, they're facing their issues and challenges and problems as followers of Christ. So you are too. You've got questions about what comes next. You've got a hardship you're facing. You've got a problem that you don't know the answer to. God has wisdom. God has a righteous path. God has forgiveness. God has encouragement for you. God has the energy that you require. But are you working through life from the bottom up? Are you focusing on your problems and your issues and your questions and you're taking it in your own hands and you're falling into that hardness of heart and sin's deceptions and your problems are becoming larger than the power of God to save? You've got to work from the top down. Start with God when you're facing questions. Start with God when you've got to make a life decision. Start with God when you're facing a challenge, a hardship, a problem. And by the time you work your way from the top, from God and understanding who he is in faith, to the bottom, you might find your problems aren't even there anymore. They have solved themselves. It's two different ways to live. To live from our convictions, to live responding to God, not reacting constantly to our circumstances. Whatever question it is you're facing, whatever problem it is you're facing, I'm asking you to ask the Lord, what would you have me do right now? Because he'll give you a clear path Living, responding to your convictions, responding to God, not reacting to your circumstances as did the Israelites. And out of that, as we fix our thoughts on Jesus, as we live responding to his direction in faith, are you promoting that to others? Are you a voice of faith? Or are you a voice of fear? Or are you no voice at all? That's my final question for you this morning to consider. With what spirit are you speaking to those around you? in the knowledge of God or otherwise, to the group of wives you hang out with, the group of husbands you hang out with, to your community group, to your spouse, to your kids, to your roommates, with what voice are you speaking? In the encouragement of trusting the Lord and confidence and hope? Or do you spread a virus of fear? Or maybe you're simply mute. It says, encourage one another as long as it is called today. That means we're gonna encourage each other not for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday, we're going to encourage each other and be positioned in such a way that we're going to encourage each other every single day as long as it is called today. But have you placed yourself in a position where you even have a voice into someone else's life that you might encourage them? There's a large number of folks in this church community who are not in community groups. They're not in discipleship groups. They're not volunteering and they're not giving. They have not positioned themselves to actually be able to live into the commission of Hebrews chapter 3 because they have no one to contribute to. And this is one of Satan's most successful deceptions in this generation, to keep the church separate, silenced, stingy, and self-absorbed. We have potential, unbelievable potential that we cannot realize as long as Satan deceives us into remaining separate, silent, stingy, and self-absorbed. But the Lord is speaking by his spirit, and he wants to equip us all to be a voice like Caleb and Joshua, to call us together, to call us into faith, to call us into sacrifice, to call us into that confidence of the hope that we have stored up for us in heaven. I want that courageous spirit of encouragement 
that different spirit and to speak by it. Let's consider these questions in prayer before the Lord. Would you join me in prayer in light of Hebrews chapter 3? Would you pray with me as we consider these? And Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the grace that enables us to draw near to you, our Father in heaven. Lord, I know if the notes of my life were to just be played on this stage, there'd be some discord. And I know that that's true for many of my brothers and sisters here. Where their life is at right now, where their attention is fixed is not on you. And their life and their thoughts may be confused this morning. But Lord, we're here We've set aside this time that we would fix our minds, fix our thoughts upon you. Would you bring us into alignment? By your Holy Spirit this morning, as we consider your word, as we've heard your voice, as we enter into a time of worship, I pray you'd be tuning the strings that are our lives, our mind, our heart, our actions, that they would come into greater alignment with you, Jesus. As you do that, Lord, would you give us direction? Would we work from the top down, considering you, the fulfiller of so many promises, our Lord, our Savior, the one who's given us this promise of a promised land in heaven that is before us. Lord, so many have questions, they have concerns. They don't know which way to go in a decision they're making in their life. They're facing hardships. Lord, just like the Israelites were facing those hardships and those circumstances on the edge of the promised land, they they focused on their circumstances, they reacted to their circumstances, they reacted to the problems, they took it into their own hands, they fell into that hardness of heart. Lord, would you guide and direct us? I pray that you would spread your wisdom abroad this morning. And in whatever my brothers and sisters are facing as they attune their minds to you, would you give them clear direction? they live responding to your leadership? Would they live out of their convictions, not reacting to their circumstances? Lord, make clear what that means. I don't know all the things, all the circumstances, all the questions my brothers and sisters have this morning, but I know you do, and you can give a clear answer. This is where I want you to go, out of conviction, out of what I've called you to. If the Israelites followed that, Lord, they would have taken the land because you were guiding them. Let me be, let all of us be that voice of faith and encouragement, that voice that says, you've fulfilled promises past, you'll fulfill them in the future. There's nothing to fear no matter what comes. You are our protection. You are our guide. If you're with us, if you're building the house, then nothing can stand against it, Lord. And that is what we are a part of in your son, Jesus. So God, no matter what comes our way, would you build in us a faith, a message of faith? Lord, I pray that you'd equip your people to all be pastors, to all be the priests that are going out, that are speaking not on a Sunday, every single day. This message of faith and courage instill in us a different spirit that is your Holy Spirit to trust in you this morning. I pray for this stirring of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. 